Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. I'm here today on the What Fuels You podcast with Xiao Wang. Xiao holds degrees from both Stanford and Harvard universities and spent some time working in New York City before deciding to plant his roots in Seattle. Xiao immigrated to the United States from China when he was just three years old. His own family's struggles sparked the idea for his company, Boundless Immigration, which he co-founded in 2017. Boundless has received several awards, including being named a finalist for Fast Company's World Changing Ideas Award. The company's mission is to empower families to navigate the immigration system more confidently, rapidly, and affordably. Xiao is married, and he is the proud father of a cocker spaniel named Charlie, who I'm sure we'll talk about. Welcome, Xiao. Glad to be here, Shana. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so grateful to Greg Gottesman. Big shout out for introducing us. Um, I've been following you for a while, and uh, your story's so motivating and um, and timely. So I'm excited to get to know you better. Um, we're going to start with rapid fire. You ready? All right. Bring it. Let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite TV show? <laughs> this I am you can, failing you can admit miserably. It. You can at admit. Rapid I can fire. tell it's like it's like Shaws of Sunset or something. No. <laughs> Reality TV. You don't have to say something brilliant. Recently, it's it's Stranger Things because mm. I didn't grow up in the U.S. <laughs> during this time, and I have what is known as an immigap. Oh, where uh, a lot of immigrants share, which is there is a probably ten to fifteen year gap in pop culture. Oh, interesting. Because you were never exposed to it as a yeah, child. like because, the 80s. Because you were doing math and piano. And so it's fascinating seeing America of that era yeah. when I technically lived during there, but I was not exposed to it at yeah, all. Yeah, I haven't. I started to watch it and I couldn't get into it. But yeah, my husband loves that show. Um, okay, so given that you're a badass triathlete, bike, swim, or run? Run, for sure. Are you more like your mom or your dad? Dad. Okay, we'll talk about that. Um, what Chinese food is, traditional Chinese food, is your favorite? There's this uh, salty duck that is the most famous dish from my hometown that you can't get anywhere else. What's the hometown? Uh, Nanjing. Oh, nice. And so how do you, is it fried? No, it's cold and it's just... Do you know how to make it? No. Does Lisa know how to make it? No. <laughs> it doesn't travel out of out of that one town. Oh, so that's your favorite. And do you get back there often? I used to when my parents lived in China, um, and I had more grandparents that were alive. Um, yeah. I haven't been back in a couple of years. Yeah. I have so many questions for you. Okay. So you were in China. Your parents are from China, and you were there till you were three. And then um, your parents moved here to give you, you know, I'm assuming a better life. Were they kind of the ones that got out, or did a lot of the relatives leave? No, they were the only ones. Um, in fact, it was only my mother was allowed to leave, and my 
essentially my father and I were held back as you can argue call it like collateral. Collateral, yeah. And then through a variety of connections and begs and borrows and, you know, whatever else needed to happen, my dad was allowed to leave and join my mother in in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then eventually I was allowed to leave. So all of this happened uh, with them hoping that they could create a better life for me. Mm -hmm. Are you an only child? uh, Yes. uh, One child policy in China. So everyone's. Everyone's. Only child. So, yeah, yeah, I didn't didn't even like. In my mind, I'm thinking of my American friends. So you're the one child, and what um, what did your parents hope for you, or did they did they tell you that when you kind of came over, like, hey, we're making these sacrifices, and this is what we want for you? They never put any guilt or burden on me, which is to their credit. Uh, they just wanted me to live the best possible life mm-hmm. I could. And how right? would they define that? Well, it's that best possible life. I think in the beginning, it was just a chance to have an education. During the Cultural Revolution, so my my mother was in the seventh grade, my dad was in the fifth grade, they closed all the schools. So literally, they my parents never got a chance to go to middle school, high school, college. Mm-hmm. And so they basically went straight to the fields and the factories and learned uh, under the premise of like that, that work uh, was the best form of learning. Mm-hmm. And they really long for the chance of you know, getting an education, mm-hmm. uh, which is why they continued to study on their own, got books from the black market. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. It sounds like they're very curious people. That's just kind of innately who they are. And would you describe most people in the community the same way? And it was just like they were more resourceful or more um, assertive about kind of getting their needs met? I think you always have a choice of when when you're in a in difficult situation of just doing what is expected of you in that difficult situation or having this irrational sense of optimism that something will get better. Mm-hmm. And I think if there's one thing that they passed me is the irrational sense of optimism, which mm-hmm. definitely carries me through as I... Yeah. In the yeah, rapid sorry, fire, you that was the quickest answer. Well, that and running. Yeah. Dad and running. Um, how are you like your dad? He... is interested in pretty much everything. And he can have a conversation about any topic with any person. And he also does not enjoy going super deep in one single thing. Mm -hmm. And so when I say that I'm like my dad, it's that I would much rather have a very broad and, you know, potentially shallower set of expertise or experiences than being the world's best at any one thing. Mm-hmm. And what's how would you describe your mom's personality? So she's the she's the opposite. She's also very you know very intellectual and and curious, but she wants to do one thing and mm-hmm. do it really well. So she got a and what's PhD. What's the one thing? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> it's changed over time, but it started in power systems control, right? So it's like literally, how do you run a power plant and like do the various uh, how how does a grid work? Mm-hmm. Uh, later on, she moved into um, like what we call now big data. But at the time, is you know 
is is really around business intelligence and like how do you how do you look at databases how do you structure information so that people can actually make decisions around mm-hmm. them so they got here they had worked in factories and in fields and so they got here and what were their what was their career trajectory like so they uh, <clears throat> After their factories and fields, what they ended up doing is they tested into the equivalent uh, as, as the U.S. like GRE mm-hmm. uh, and was able to go straight into grad school in China when the schools opened back up. And so they went, you know, and it still boggles my mind that it, like my father went from fifth grade to a master's program yeah. right, <laughs> on his own. It boggles my mind um, also. And so... Yeah, they they studied uh, engineering in China mm-hmm. and then worked in labs over there. Uh, and then when they came to the U.S., uh, my my mother got a Ph.D. in electrical engineering, and my father did a master in computer science and also in electrical. And have they found their own individual success here? They they achieved well everything, by their definition, right? I guess. They achieved everything that they 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 could have hoped for in the U.S. Meaning that yeah, we were after. You know, the first couple of years, we were never concerned that, like, we wouldn't have food to eat, that we wouldn't have a roof over our heads. They were able to support me in doing these crazy things American kids did, like mm-hmm. t-ball mm-hmm. and um, uh, and Boy Scouts and and things that that they never had a chance to, to have exposure to. Mm-hmm. And did they find a Chinese community or did they just immerse themselves into kind of this area in Seattle, what was that community like when you grew up? It wasn't as deep as other children's uh, upbringings that I met later on in life who are, who are Chinese. Um, their optimization function was, hey, where can we find a great public school system so mm-hmm. that I could have the opportunities that I wanted to, not where can they find people who are like them that they mm-hmm. can build that community. What's interesting is now that they're retired, they now have a, a much more vibrant Chinese community and network and people they see yeah. uh, regularly and go on trips with. So it's it's good that they, they eventually found that. Yeah. And where did you learn um, all about kind of the history of China? You weren't raised there, but your family's there. Um, are there things that you've learned just through talking to family members or do you read a lot about the world and about history? I had the chance to spend a significant number of my summers back in my hometown growing up. And so given that my parents are the only ones who who uh, left the country or were allowed to leave the country, um, the rest of my entire extended family, grandparents, aunts, um, cousins. So in, in, China, in, in China, because of the one-child policy, your first cousins are treated as your siblings mm. because no one had siblings. So how many did you have? Uh, I had five on my dad's side and then two on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, I got a lot of exposure that way. And then later on, I developed an interest in trying to understand a lot of these problems better, and including spending uh, a summer in really rural parts of China, like under trying to understand their education system and working with local um, local government officials, mm-hmm. so it's it's something that you know I I've always viewed deeply as a part of who I am, mm-hmm. um, and I think that especially moving forward as you know the world uh, coalesces around a couple of cultures and a couple of large and like large powerful 
countries or you know quasi organizations that um having that understanding of what's going on in China is is going to be more and more important. Oh, for sure. And we're going to get into, obviously, Boundless and how that all started. But um, I read about and know that your parents had a expensive and kind of cumbersome immigration process. Um, did you know that it was that at the time? I mean, you were so little. I did not know. Did that come up, though, in your childhood? Like being being immigrants, did that come up for them? The uncertainty of being an immigrant was always a part of our life until um, we we naturalized. Uh, thankfully, mm-hmm. they they shielded me in the beginning of like the the financial trade offs that they had to make to make sure that they could find a lawyer, pay a lawyer, and get us our green cards. I later on you know, helped them through the naturalization process mm-hmm. and understanding you know U.S. government and civics and mm-hmm. and and in in my mind growing up that was like an exciting, you know, challenge and 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 transition. Mm-hmm. Um, for them, it was something that was deeply, uh, deeply emotional. Oh, of course. Uh, and what surprised you most as you started to dig deeper and and learn more as you were helping them? It was the fact that you know what it means to be an American, right? They they loved all of these ideals that America has around education, around opportunity. Um, you know, we are very much the beneficiaries of the uh, this concept called the American dream, which unfortunately is getting harder and harder uh, for for many families to be able to reach. On the other hand, to be to to fully embrace that, they also have this recognition of 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 being responsible for continuing this, which meant that they had to give up um, allegiances to their original country. And mm-hmm. for me, it's it was less of a trade-off. Sure, my whole family is back in China, and I would consider myself Chinese, but you know, I, I spent most of my childhood and adult life in the U.S., and I'm fully immersed in this culture. Mm-hmm. But for them, it meant you know, swearing an oath to have a new allegiance to, to, to not the country that they were born in and not the country that they're from, right. which is a far more emotional uh, decision. Oh, of course. Of course. And so this concept of I heard your um, commencement speech, which was amazing at um, UW Informatics um, School. And um, I know that you also gave the keynote at your high school, which is such an honor. And it must have been fun. Were you nervous? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, nervous. And so you talked a little bit about kind of the tiger mom thing. And um, is that a compliment for somebody to say to a Chinese family? Or is that a put down? Like, can a white person say that? Like, oh, you have a tiger mom. Or is that the same as I could, you know, you can only say it with your own people. It has turned into a negative thing. Mm -hmm. I think across the board, no one, um, you know, uh, within at least the current, like, Chinese communities, people don't want to be thought of as that because of all the negative connotations. Although they want all the upsides of that in terms of... They want the achievement. They want the achievement without people feeling like they were forced to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, to my parents' deep credit, uh, they tried raising me as an American. Besides speaking only Chinese at home, they let me do things, and they encouraged me to do activities Mm -hmm. that, that no other Chinese kid did growing up. Like soccer. Yeah, like sports, right? Yeah. Or, 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 as I mentioned, like Boy Scouts. Yes. Uh, or later on, you know, we, we reached an interesting uh, agreement where it was that as long as I maintained straight A's, 
I could choose what activities I wanted to do mm-hmm. after school. If that meant, you know, acting in a in a one act play, or um, you know, going camping, or you know, all sorts of like other activities that that my family friends, so the other Chinese kids, um, you know, didn't didn't get a chance to do. Yeah, are they like? Can't you just be more like Shao's mom and dad? Your mom and dad are like setting the bar high. And so you and Lisa, I know, don't have kids yet. But when you do, what things are you going to bring into your parenting that are similar? Obviously, it's a different time. But have you thought through that? What values are most important? Very. uh, Tough question, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Lisa's like, yeah, honey. Yes. What are we doing? Of course we talked about this. We talked about this. We're all on the same page. Everybody's so clear. Yeah, what's what's fascinating as you start looking at the various, you know, the uh, literature and like the research, and it's funny. Lisa actually spent some time at um, Bing uh, when she was uh, in, in grad school, which is this, uh, which is this incredible daycare uh, that's connected to the Stanford Psychology and Education Department, where they have amazing services, but they also run all of these different experiments on kids <laughs> uh, in, in a very, you know, uh, very positive yeah. way. There's no placebos being given and, like, fake drugs and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a right way. Uh, this is me speaking very naively. Well, do you think uh, that you'll be strict and and um, put a value on, like your, you said, straight A's? Um, because obviously we haven't gotten to it yet, but, I mean, Stanford undergrad and master's and then Harvard Business School. I actually think uh, when I was in New York, I, I did some, uh, and, and even here, I do, I do some interviewing for Stanford for like as alumni, mm-hmm. and you know, two of the things that they they talk about around you know the way that they value and the things that you look for um, for for prospective students are first is intellectual vitality, and second is depth and commitment. Um, and I think that those two areas are very important. I, I, you know, the first part is like, I want to foster a deep sense of curiosity in the world of how things work, of why people do the things they do, of, and, and have that safety in it, it, yeah, from, from day one of being able to ask any questions you want to about how, mm-hmm. uh, like about any topic. And I think having that will will help them guide wherever the the direction that their intellectual vitality may take them. Mm-hmm. And the second part around depth and commitment um, is, you know, is, is I was I was listening to um, a talk by Angela Duckworth uh, around grit, and something that really struck me is that yeah, there's a lot of conversations today about like sort of finding your passion, and I there's a natural revulsion in my mind to like that because like what does that mean and then also you're just setting people up to be disappointed their whole life because like yeah, I this couldn't is agree not... more <laughs> what, what I, I honestly totally agree like Oprah talks about it all the time and I'm like I feel so much pressure <laughs> right, and like... I've been doing the same thing for 25 years I'm like I hope it's my I mean I, connecting is people is this my passion <laughs> but there's plenty yeah. of things I mean right. that are, are interesting to me I'm kind of like you a generalist <laughs> And what what she talked about in terms of good is that, like, in the beginning, the first time you do something, you are going to be bad at it. And it's like, as you, and you're not going to like it because you're bad at it. Very few of us are Tiger Woods. So, like, at age three is whacking a drive down the middle of the fairway. And so for the rest of us, 
it's the idea that like even if I'm bad at something, it doesn't mean I'm going to just stop doing it. I'm going to keep trying at it, and then eventually I'm going to get good at it, or I'm going to learn something about myself about what I can get good at or what I you know do enjoy, and then I use that to find that like next step. And and it's like you become more passionate about something the more you do it,、mm-hmm. um, as you get more mastery of it. And so it's that idea that like I I want in especially in a in an era where there's just So much more choice than there was before,、mm-hmm. right? And、when、so I, much desire for instant gratification. Yeah, when I, when I was growing up, I, I yeah, and and this also is a not to like fact that、um, there wasn't as much homework and there wasn't as much pressure. I think, yeah, I would spend afternoons doing nothing, right? Like talking to people on in in their driveways. Yeah. Uh, and that's how what a spend, concept, right? I would walk a mile by myself to someone's house,、yes. and we just sit outside and just talk. Yes,、um, which I don't think happens anymore. And 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 I want to、uh, create a play,、uh, you know, foster the sense that like it's okay to be not great at something,、uh, but it's important that if you set yourself out to do something, you. Do all the steps, and you keep going until you you're、uh, and and to not you know give up at the first sign of that that something's not working or something's difficult. Right. Well, it sounds like the way you were raised worked out for you. Stanford undergrad, as I said, and and masters, and then um, Harvard. Um, how did you choose Stanford? I mean, you had your eye on it. I know how Lisa did. You have to tell、yeah. that story. <laughs> it was one of those moments where、um, yeah, I again I was. Every definition of that you would think of from the ne- negative sort of pejorative stereotype of a nerd, right? Like I, you know, did a really well at school. I did, you know, classical music. I chess play video games. I was actually I try I could not get into chess,、mm. um, and so I wanted. In, in hindsight, it's like just like what was I thinking? I wanted a school that was good at a lot of things、mm-hmm. that were not just about the nerdy side. Yeah, about yeah. deep intellectual pursuits. Yeah, well, Stanford's got. I mean, you got the Pac-10, you got the sports, you got Silicon Valley right there. Exactly. The sun. Although at the time, like now, I think ninety-five、uh, percent of the kids at Stanford take the intro to CS class. Back then, CS was actually a relatively small major. Yeah.、Um, but yeah, so I I wanted a, a school that that had that breadth because I didn't know what I wanted to go into,、mm-hmm. uh, but also cared about these you know other pursuits that I that I found interesting. You just knew. It sounds like you've known forever that you wanted this kind of feeling of balance. Um. How did you choose to study math science? Is it called math science? Yeah.、Uh, so what's, what's math? Ma- I mean, what、uh, did you study? So, yeah. No, I got my undergrad in、uh, in economics, and then I did、uh, my master's in something called management science and engineering. Oh, management science and engineering. Okay. So, how did you decide to study management science and engineering? Like, what is management science? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'm still trying to figure out. Is that like management、basis. of people?、Um, it is a. It is what happens when you combine、uh, a number of degree programs over time, and then everyone fights for their own corner of the title. Got it. And so it's a combination of industrial engineering. So think like optimal control theory, queuing, you know. Math-based science with organizational behavior, and then engineering economics, which is like economics with 
you know, computers involved. And so what were was, some of your courses called? Uh, so or I, the coolest ones that you're like, wow, I got a lot out of that. So what what was nice is that because it encompassed everything, I could do a lot of different things. Um, and so it ranged from, you know, me being able to take some classes in uh, around, around entrepreneurship and technology, uh, along with uh, doing things in an organizational behavior, which I really enjoyed, and yeah. the study of people. Yeah, my and husband's then, got his PhD in organizational psychology. So right. people was like, "What?" But that's a real. I mean, it's a thing. The thing. And then my favorite was uh, I was there when we started uh, the D school. So this is a uh, design thinking school that was in combination between uh, the college and, and various departments uh, with IDEO which is the, uh, the design thinking consultancy firm. And so it's about solving real-world problems. So like one of my favorite classes was Disneyland came in and asked, hey, how do you redesign Disneyland for non-native English speakers? And so I spent the next two months going to theme parks with video cameras, like interviewing, trying out, prototyping different signs, different uh, constructs, like ways of trying to understand, hey, what would it be like to bring a family to an amusement park when you didn't under- understand the signs uh, or any of the languages? And like, how can we make it a better experience? I just had an op- I mean, in my mind, I'm picturing us maybe because we're wearing our podcast headphones. <laughs> But I'm picturing like how you go to a museum and you just get like you put on the headphones and they're like, oh, turn left if you want to see Mickey and whatever. Yeah. No, there's a lot of things that we we try doing, but it it opened my eyes to like, oh, how do we actually think about the user experience uh, in a deep, deep way to, you know, create delight in, in unexpected places? Yeah. Sounds really, really cool. And then, okay, so right after that, then you decided to move to New York and work for McKinsey. Um, was that just kind of the, that's what you do? And why not come back to Seattle? In, in, um, in a regretful uh, answer to that question is, yeah, I think it was one that's what you do. My, my top two choices actually ended up being either uh, McKinsey in New York mm-hmm. or I had a... Um, pretty amazing opportunity at Microsoft and which was doubly uh, interesting about Microsoft is that my parents uh, moved to China and so if I took the job at Microsoft I would actually have a house already like my childhood home you know I would have a car already you know my life would be kind of set I I would I was going to be making twice as much as I would have at McKinsey And, and twice as low cost of living yeah so four times. And so, um, which might be uh, represent who I am, um, that just felt too easy. Mm. And New York is one of those, I mean, at least for me, I always knew I needed to live in New York. And I think it's um, probably helped shape you in ways that you might not even be aware of yet. What was your experience there? Did you arrive and, like, love it? Or did it take a little bit of time? I thought I was going to only be there for two years. Mm-hmm. It was going to be one of those in and out. Great, Everybody check says the that. Box. Yeah, and I stayed for over five. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I honestly loved it. I loved the energy. I loved the people. Uh, m- because of what my you know, girlfriend at the time, now wife, did, she was in Teach for America in the South Bronx. You know, I was in consulting and the private equity and then I joined the Department of Education and she joined Charter School. Like we got to intersect with a variety of different pools of people mm-hmm. and different schools of thought and different perspectives that yeah. um, to be honest I wish there were more of in yeah. places like Seattle. Oh for sure. 
So you were working at McKinsey, and then you decided, was it a necessity for you in your mind to go back and get an MBA? Yeah, I had, uh, at that point, done you know, my, my work at the you know, Department of Education, leading teams and new initiatives. I worked in private equity, which was a lot of the job that, that people really wanted after the MBA program. So um, fundamentally, for me, it was a series, it was two things. One uh, was that my wife uh, was in education her whole time and wanted to to see what was this private sector world that that I was part of, and mm-hmm. so she went and got her MBA, and then I decided that you know I can't let you spend all of our money and have fun by yourself, yeah. so I might as well just join the party and go deeper in debt. The same school? Uh, no. Oh yeah, uh, different schools. Yeah, so she was at Dartmouth. Got it. The time, and then. Uh, the second part is is a very trusted mentor of mine um, talked about how it was a investment for on a twenty year time horizon. So in five years it doesn't make sense. In ten years it doesn't make sense. But he's talking about how one of his section mates, um, what uh, so classmates at business school, yeah, her child got this rare cancer and realized that she realized that there was no research for this variant of the disease uh, that and so decided to start a foundation for it and just sent a note out to the other 90 people in her class and within two weeks they had raised you know double digit millions for for research set up a whole foundation set up wow. a board and um, for the first time there's potential hope that that something can be can be found mm-hmm. for, for this so the mentor disease. was talking about the the network and so yeah so the idea is that you know you don't know what's going to happen but mm-hmm. um, the types of relationships and the types of people that you meet over you know this this, this two-year period uh, will potentially you know help you be able to solve really really meaningful challenges oh, down yeah, the road. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so you mentioned mentor. Do you have several mentors? And is that a formal thing? And also, do you mentor others? Yeah, it's. Uh, I have been extraordinarily... Um, I mean, this word's used a lot. You don't say privilege, lucky. Right? No, no, I've been... Mm-hmm. Extra, uh, I think, I think, you know, I think everyone is lucky at different points in time. And it's about, like, being able to recognize that and take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they say lucky people see themselves as lucky. Interesting. Does that make sense? I completely believe that. Like, if you think you're lucky, yeah. then luck finds you because you go into life with an open heart and an open mind and a um, curiosity about people. So you have these mentors that otherwise, you know, some other people may have just passed on because they wouldn't have been open to the idea of extending themselves to the person. True. Um, I do think that there is value in recognizing how big of a role luck plays in your life in terms of removing the idea that, like, all of your accomplishments are because of you. Mm-hmm. And then you start thinking about, okay, well, where are times where other people have not had as much luck? And, right. where, like, how, how can we, you know, create those opportunities for others? Yeah. But in this case, yeah, so I've had a number of um, phenomenal mentors in my life. Uh, yeah, I think the the first one that, that made a huge impact was uh, that, you know, as, as a freshman in, in college, you get re- assigned a random 
academic advisor. And so that can be anyone uh, who's in, on faculty, anyone who's on staff, anyone who's a you know, PhD or other grad student. Uh, and I got exceptionally lucky that that my um, assigned mentor or advisor uh, was was Howard Wolf, who is the president and still is the president of the Stanford Alumni Association. And what he has been able to do for me, and we've we've kept a great relationship this whole time. And he's been to my wedding, like you know, we we still meet up every chance we, we can. Um, is by being a a sounding board um, for whatever are the the open questions or thoughts in my mind, and then due to his network of relationships, be able to find me someone who can engage me on that issue at a much deeper level. So, mm-hmm. in this case, it was you know when I was thinking about uh, you know what I wanted to do after college, he introduced me to someone who introduced me to someone who was at McKinsey and was like. This is what you get to learn, and you know this is why it's the best like two year investment you can make in your career. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you know I was thinking about <clears throat> you know, um, leaving McKinsey to to go to Le Cordon Bleu and and becoming a chef. Wait, is that was, like, was that a thing? It, it was a thing for for a brief period of time. So, do uh, you cook now? I do. I love cooking. Um, oh, that's awesome. I, I, my, my great lament was that I could never take a girl to on a date to a Chinese restaurant. Right? Why? Because there was no Chinese restaurant at the time that had the level of ambiance and the level of like service and the level of food that you would think of as a romantic. I feel like I went. Uh, what's it called in New York on on the East Side on Fifty Fifth um, near McKinsey? Amazing Chinese food, but maybe a more American Chinese. Food. Yeah. Um, you know what restaurant? Yes, I'm thinking I, of? I know. It I was know fancy. It was, it was very like, fancy. Very and, fancy. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so you wanted to learn. But that was to... more like a, I wanted to like bring joy to people's lives through food. And then he was like, like, you have plenty of time to do that. But right now, and, and, and again, like, actually, I've never, you have this talent of bringing this out of people. I was like, I've never talked about this openly. But oftentimes when I'm facing uh, a choice in my, in my career and like what I choose to do and um, I actually think about him, and I and I say like, okay, WWHD. What yeah. would Howard do? Well, no. What would make him proud? Oh, right, because like he's invested, uh, like to a, you know, overly arrogant and you know, eighteen year old, like was so open about these like treasured relationships that he's built up over decades of mm-hmm. his life in this career, mm-hmm. right? And he was always open to like talking about issues or you know opening his world to me that there's also always like this bit of a chip that's like okay like if i got this you know incredible gift that is it has catapulted me you know early phases of my career how can i make sure that everything i do is something that is commiserate like and is respect uh it, it is respectful of that gift that I received. Yeah, that you received from Howard. Yeah. Yeah, that's so nice. Well, hopefully he's listening to this. I would feel honored if someone said that. And do you mentor others as a, or are you ready to do that kind of later in life? I, I do. Um, I, because of the number of switches that I have made mm-hmm. in my career between, you know, being the stereotypical, like, 
consulting private equity business school route or the like public sector route or now the entrepreneurship route, um, I have my my mentees tend to be uh, in one of these like segments. Yeah, and so like the the types of people that I, I talk with, um, yeah, have have shifted over the years. I would mm-hmm. like to create. Uh, and 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 start focusing more on like developing people through their entire career over time. That would be incredible, and anybody would be lucky to have you as their mentor. Um, you talked about, and I don't know if people have listened to your um, commencement speech, but I loved that you talked about the Venn diagram, and and it's perfect timing to talk about it because we're talking about the different segments of work. You talked about cash being a motivator or career or calling, and that people tend to make decisions based on one of those things being the driver. And you really hit on all, like private equity being the cash choice, Mm -hmm. um, the career choice being McKinsey, and then the calling thing being the Department of Education that you did. And I just love that. Is that a thing? And I'm a recruiter and just didn't know about it? Or is that your thing? Did you come up with that? I came up with it, but I'm sure that other people have different variants of. But uh, I like, like your variants because I've I've talked about the I've had people talk about the kind of time versus money, mm-hmm. you know. Obviously, when you're considering things and how to make decisions, but I like this, and so I just wanted to bring it up because I think that people who are listening um, can learn from it. Just as you're going through your career and making choices, um, and if you can hit on all cylinders what you're doing now with Boundless, like you've, you've hit the unicorn situation, right? Right. I, I mean, mean <laughs> especially one that you're like, and I'm actually changing the world for better, right? right. I'm not just selling widgets. <laughs> and I mean, it's just really, it's really, really cool. And um, so let's talk about Boundless, yeah. right? Let's do it. Um, you started it uh, in 2017 after you moved back in 2014. Yep. Um, and when you first moved back, you went to Amazon. As, as one does. Where does Amazon fit into those uh, cash career calling? Where's Amazon on that? Uh, it, it was definitely more on the career side. Mm-hmm. Um, again, my wife jokes somewhat seriously that uh, my, my income has steadily decreased since 2011. Um, but uh, what, what I loved about what Amazon has been able to do is that even despite its large size, and you know, there, there's a lot of very valid criticisms you can have about the company, the culture, the impact, et cetera. But for a company of its size, its ability to actually create new things and and you know take big gambles. Oh yeah, it's incredible. Is at a at a way and scale that would never happen. Like the project that I was doing, say Amazon Go, um, which is the store where there's no checkout, you just mm-hmm. take what you want and you leave. Was something with the technology at that time in 2014, completely unfundable by the private sector. Right. There was no venture capital that firm that would be like, "Here is 400 million dollars to go like try to create this." Yeah. And now, since Amazon Go launched, there are now dozens of startups doing different variants of Chasing, machine learning yeah. and everything. And that's great because it's creating a whole new ecosystem around this this industry. Um, but the fact that like we are able to do this unencumbered by the rest of Amazon, unencumbered by the like pressures of being able to make money or quarterly earnings, um, and that we didn't. Yeah, and, and they've done something unlike the old Microsoft days where you all had to plug into this like. You know, home ship. Like every decision we made was what is the best thing for 
customers of our experience. Mm-hmm. And well, the I, customer obsession being one of their um, values, you know, that, that they really live by. Yeah. And, and honestly, like, once you have that mindset of, like, what is the best customer experience at any given point in time, you actually end up being consistently disappointed by other companies. Right, where you're like, yeah. literally, there is a clear answer that would make this experience better. better. Yeah. And you're choosing not to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So was that a hard decision to leave Amazon and start Boundless? Just as far as risk and Lisa saying, hey, yo, how about some income here, honey? At that time, when I actually decided to, to, to go with Boundless, um, it was because I couldn't not do it. Mm-hmm. So under that mindset, there wasn't it wasn't a hard decision. And so this was 2017. I want you to walk me through yeah. literally. This is where I get like I geek out on this stuff. As a as also an entrepreneur, you're like, do you remember the moment when you're like, this is what I'm gonna do? And then how did you find your co-founders? So I had met uh, Greg Goddessman um, a couple years ago. So I, I'm on the board of Stanford Club of Washington. Um, I just finished a program called Leadership Tomorrow. Uh, which is bringing in public sector, private sector, nonprofit uh, folks from around the region to talk about what makes a healthy community and what we want Seattle to be. And I felt like that I, I was really invigorated by a lot of those conversations about, hey, uh, like, I love this region. I love this city. How can we make sure that Seattle you know, develops and grows the right way? And so as part of that, I launched a couple of panels around the the future of education, the future of like economy, and and Greg was one of the, uh, the 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 panelists that were brought on. And through that event, and afterwards, like I've been talking with him for a number of years about different ideas. Um, but for me, I always view like if I'm going to actually do this, meaning if I were to go and start a company, like it will become the top priority in my life. And so I will be a worse husband than I was previously. I'm a worse son. I, you know, used to be a competitive athlete. And now I have, get, like, and it's a huge mental shift. I will never PR again, right? Like, and that's something that, you know. Not necessarily. <laughs> Thank you. Time is not I want to know about the PR, by okay. the way. Um, and, and so it's, and, and yeah, you don't see friends. You give up hobbies. And so for something that's all in consuming, in my mind, it has to be something that if it works out, that I can look back and be and be really proud of what I accomplished. Mm-hmm. Right? And feel that it was worth it and because f- it, it was meaningful. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's that was my criteria for and, and we like I banded around a lot, like I, I have random ideas all the time. So was it a like thing this. that you met Greg and then you're like, I know I want to be an entrepreneur now, I need to come up with an idea? Or was it, oh my gosh, we need to fix this immigration problem and it timed with like Trump and everything else happening and no, I, I'm always always a little bit ashamed when I talk about the the origin story because this problem in hindsight was just so obvious, and but it was so obvious that it was taken for granted in my mind, like that immigration is ridiculously hard and broken, right? Like my family went through, my my parents spent almost five months of rent money on an immigration attorney when we first came over. You get a group of immigrants together, and you talk about the immigration process, and it turns into an oppression Olympics of sorts, where the who's person was worse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the person who gets who's the top worse score. gets yeah. like. Gets, gets, gets. Well, you heard, you got your story. Wait till you hear my story. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it. It never crossed my mind that, that there Maybe could be something yeah. different about it until I met someone in, in Seattle who spent, you know, 
five digits on their immigration attorney and had a terrible experience. And that um, after talking to immigration attorney, like this particular one, they said that, oh, you know, I just looked at, you know, talked to them for like half an hour, handed over my paralegals and then like signed off at, at the end. And I was like, wait a second, like that was $10,000 of work? Yeah, um, I don't think so. And 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 this isn't a, a knock against immigration attorneys. There's some fantastic ones out there that do, do great work. But like the fundamental structure that here's an industry that, that, that they, people are terrified and lack any information in and the only people who have information are charging $500 an hour felt like exactly the kind of problems that like technology is meant to solve right a hundred percent but and, so how did you come up so then what how did you come up with it so what ended up happening so it's late 2016 um and i was you know doing my day job at amazon and then uh spending my evening like taking a line bike down to pioneer square to like uh, Pioneer Square Labs, which which Greg co-founded, uh, and then working with the team there about like what are some different ways that we can tackle this. Who do we need to talk to? And I spent a number of months just interviewing people and talking to people and trying to like families, immigration lawyers, government policy experts, until it got to a point where it was just utterly so obvious in my mind. Not to say that it was going to be easy, but that this needed to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up taking uh, some PTO time from work to do this as my full-time job. Mm -hmm. And then out of it was came, came decided that like this is what I wanted to dedicate my life to. Mm -hmm. And then what's the next step as far as finding co-founders? So this is where um, I benefited greatly from the PSL model. Uh, and I talk about how like this is, you know, I'm at least a year and a half, if not more, faster than I would be on my own, is that through their network, once the flag was put up, like, hey, we're trying to solve immigration, all sorts of interesting uh, connections were made. So, you know, uh, first co-founder is Doug Rand. He, uh, he was an introduction from um, one of the investors for PSL, Brad Feld, who I saw later on his from actually Foundry, Foundry yeah. who who led our Series A eventually, um, uh, who was this guy out of worked in the Obama administration, their White House, and led immigration reform efforts. At that time, Brad was just like, "Hey, you know, you're working on immigration. You should talk to Doug." Yeah. And so we started talking, and we started talking more and more. And then over time, like if this was someone who was not part of my network, and I would have never encountered, but yeah, had such such deep wealth of of knowledge and experience about what's going on in D.C. and what's yeah. happening from a policy Perfect. standpoint. Perfect. That's an awesome uh, co-founder. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> and then another was um, you know, Sardar is my, my CTO who uh, is you know from Turkey, um, worked at a, a both large and small companies, and was really trying to also find like something meaningful mm. uh, to 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 create, and was also part of this. PSL network. Um, and, you know, again, like with everything, it's, you know, takes multiple meetings, multiple dates, and then uh, you realize that, okay, like, 
we're doing we're, this. We're, we're we're thinking about problems the same way. We're thinking about building product the same way, and 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 we're doing this. Um, and I'm extraordinarily grateful and thankful, even now, like that people are willing to take a chance. Yeah, right? I mean, it's like a big deal to like. Yeah, and so you raised eleven point three million dollars to date. Is that that's what I read? Is that right? I love all these other podcast hosts yes. that never get anything right, and it seems to like work. But I've tried to actually get these things right. No, so that, that, that's right. Um, got it. And so, what's been um, the biggest surprise to you, and the biggest challenge as far as being an entrepreneur? So I'm very open to my team about the fact that this is my first radio, right? Like I've come in at more of a board level when I was in private equity and got to order people around, but wasn't directly responsible mm-hmm. for actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and now at... You and know, you had a lot of money coming and we in. we had a lot of money and I had a stable job. Uh, and then also like, yeah, and, and now we're especially, we're at the point where um, this is, you know, this is the largest organization I've ever run. How many so, people do you have now? So we have 35 now. Wow. And so you're not in PSL anymore. No. You've like gone out on your own. We're, uh, we're in our third office space now. Nice. Going to be exploding here. Yeah. And, um, and so... It, it's interesting. It's not like one thing, right, that, that you learn. Like, in my mind, like, I have a specific way that I, I can solve problems. And you, like, give me something, and it's like, I can try to do the, the analytical thinking. I can process things. I can try to come up with the right answer. But building a company is fascinating, mm-hmm. right? And, is the people and, side the hardest? Like, how do I motivate people and pick people? And Yeah, and, and being able to simultaneously... Yeah, the first thing is around being comfortable with bringing on people who are way better than you at what they do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it may sound like the easiest thing in the world. Of course, I want to hire someone who's better than me. Um, but in reality, like it, it's it's hard to properly not only evaluate these uh, people because you're not an expert at it, but also to actually feel comfortable giving away your Legos, as the like saying goes. Um, when you think of it as your baby, right? Mm-hmm. When you have a like a way that you want to do things, and mm-hmm. it's like, are are you comfortable? And when are you? Like, how do you not micromanage? To, to actually let people do their jobs. Yeah, is that one of your flaws? Do you think? Are you a micromanager? I think in the beginning, one of the um, someone uh, recommended I read this book called uh, "What What Got You Here Won't Get You There." which is a great book for, you know, high-achieving ICs who are entering in leadership positions. Uh, and I realized that one of my, you know, biggest flaws is around adding too much value. So in every conversation, every decision I was in, I felt like for me to be able to justify why I was there, I had to make some suggestion or make some improvement or, like, you, you had know, to have a wow moment I that they to, would leave, to, like, better. Yeah. And... What is it's like, sure, in some cases I may have helped people reach a 5% better answer, but I have taken away 50% of their, like, ownership and, and the empowerment creativity. and creativity. And yeah. so, and, and so it, was a, it was a big lesson around, like, if I'm actually going to live up to the values that I, that I publicly talk about, which is, you know, we have an, a unique opportunity and obligation to create the company that we've always wanted to work at, right? Mm-hmm. That we can take all of the things that we've seen from other organizations that we love and, you know, remove all the things that, like, we didn't love. Mm-hmm. So what are the company values? Someone asked me once and I'm like, uh-oh. 
I couldn't remember with the, we had like six and I couldn't remember the sixth. Isn't this your company? Exactly. It was a nightmare. I was like, um, I was on a panel. Anyway. And so, um, so for our values, uh, we have four of them right now and we will continue to revisit them um, every year. And so I think as, as the company grows, like how we define them and what they, what, what matters um, change. So the first one is around immigrants first. So like there's so many uh, trade-offs that people have made um, and, uh, that like fundamentally we need to make sure that when families come to us, they leave in a far better place. Uh, Understanding and, the process or actually getting, uh, getting approved. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, and then mentioned publicly that like I'm, I'm exceptionally proud of our like 100% approval rate. I our, love like, that. I read that. You know, 90 plus NPS score. Like people, I mean, to be, to be fair, the bar is low and like no one's ever had a positive immigration experience yeah. before. Yeah. Do you have any competitors? Uh, um, fundamentally, there are some technology players, but we're outpacing all of them. Fundamentally, the competitors are uh, the original ways of doing things. So we're, we're creating a new, like, you know, my... my uh, You're disrupting. I, 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 I prefer not to use that word. Um, You're innovating. We're creating a new service category, as my you know, head of design would say. Like, like this is you know, you're used to going into a mahogany desk. Uh, or a mahogany-clad office, someone in a suit in front of you, you give them all your like information, and then they come back and take care of it for you. And we're saying, hey, you can do this without ever seeing anyone uh, yeah. and do it really well. Uh, and so it's it's fundamentally about changing people's perspective. So th think of it like, you know, doing taxes 15 years ago, mm -hmm. right? My dad would go to the library, we'd get the giant, like, new tax booklet, go to the photocopier, photocopy different pages, and, like, try to understand this thing. Uh, or you go to a CPA, no one ever thought, oh, I can just, like, put stuff in the, in the, in the software program. Yeah. Um, so, so the first one is really about, like, you know, everything we're doing is for these families and how can we make sure that, like, they are uh, in the best position they can. Mm -hmm. So immigrants yeah. first. Uh, second one is um, is around ownership, uh, and you know I think every problem that we've ever had as a company or every that every project that didn't go quite smoothly is because there wasn't clear ownership over um, who who gets to make the decisions, what are we trying to do, and uh, you know how important this is for you. So, um, and. And I think that the idea is that people can do amazing things mm -hmm. when they feel like they ha they have the you know empowerment and the flexibility and freedom to do the things that they they that we hired them to do. Mm -hmm. um, and so much of what companies do, from a policy standpoint, from everything else, is about trying to like prevent the bad things from happening when in reality it's like you're hiring great people and you're trying to make them do great like you're, you're trying Maybe to the good things can actually happen right you're yeah. trying to let them do the great work that you hired them to yeah. do yeah um, the third is uh, around strive and this is an idea that uh, and it's probably built out of you know my own upbringing around always looking for to be the best version of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so that is a level of self-awareness of when, you know, things fall short or where like things could be better combined with a a inner like um intrinsic desire to do things better mm -hmm. the next time. And so we you know, we talk about making mistakes all the time, right? Every year since our startup like we f fail every day at different things. Uh 
but what will help us overcome any of these challenges and be wildly successful down the road is if we can take the moment to recognize those areas and gaps and have the motivation to be better at it the next time. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's reminding me of you, the triathlete. Which what is your PR? You did an Ironman, right? I did an Ironman. Um, uh, so I did my Ironman PR is like nine thirty seven. Oh my gosh! Uh, it was the hardest day of my life. Well, of course. Was it um, the Hawaii? The did uh, you do Hawaii? I did do Hawaii. Uh, that was more of a victory lap. <laughs> um, uh, that uh, the first one was was in it was in Texas, um, and that was my first Ironman. And with I had the the implicit goal of making Hawaii. So I had friends there, family there. And, um, you know, what, what ended up happening was I knew that, like, the top three people in my age group would make it to the championships. And I was in, you know, the fourth position with a couple miles to go, and I was, like, a minute behind. And, you know, I would, I, I just was fighting with my body the whole time where like my if I if I push too hard my legs would cramp and so but then my like I I just wanted like your mind I spent the entire day out here chasing that person and um and so you know it it was one of these moments where I finally like crossed like the, the the last turn and I saw him and I sprinted and then my legs cramped up and I like stumbled across the finish line and I lost by by under 10 seconds and um and I was just devastated and then he turns around he's like oh I already won a race so I already have my slot and and so you so, can so have it. Yeah, so you can oh, have see, it. Oh, see, good things happening to good people. And so, yeah, the word strive just totally, I pictured you, like, out there. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, so that was, like, the most, that was the largest emotional roller coaster out of uh, a minute's worth of time oh, yeah. <laughs> that I have imagine. ever been on. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like, the, the, as a segue, like, around, you know, doing these, like, endurance sports. And not only is it it's something that, you know, I talk about in my speech about a part of my identity and, like, why, like, it, it gives me confidence to do things that uh, Asian people are not expected to do good at. But also... Well, most people. <laughs> you, let's not just limit it to Asians. That's, that's like all people. Um, You're in the like 1% of 1% of 1%, like this Ironman thing, endurance runners. It, it, it's really... It's the nut job. You're just a nut job. It's all right. Um, so it's not something you're proud of. Yeah. But what it does is that like during those moments is, you know, I can say at the end of that, I and, and same thing I can say for marathons and, and other kind of long distance athletic endeavors that I gave everything I could that day mm-hmm. for that. And and I could never say that in other parts of my life, right? Like you can never be like, man, today I was the best employee yeah. like I could ever be, or yeah. I was the best husband, or, yeah. or I was the best parent. No, but it's so yeah. true when you're doing that because it's so measurable and you know, like there is not much more I can do. Yeah. And it's like, that was it. And yeah. you just like empty all of it out, and it's extraordinarily cathartic uh, and emotional. And I think it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's impressive. I'm like better yeah. you than me. <laughs> you and can do your, it. What's your we'll, fourth? We'll it. What's your fourth value? Uh, fourth value is empathy, uh, and nice. the, the, it's around the idea that we can make far better decisions if we take the time to um, 
to walk in someone else's to shoes. To truly understand. Yeah. Um, and, and it's interesting because uh, partially because of the PSL model of like them helping bring and bridge people together, partially because of how we deliberately built out the organization, like we don't have a shared DNA. We're, we're pretty unique in the like technology startup community in Seattle in that, you know, we don't have a core set of uh, uh like origins from people like we're not like a group of amazonians we're not a group of microsoft people we're not a group of google or uber or Mm -hmm. like there's not like immigrants and experts which i love yeah and and so that has given us the chance to be like you know more than 60 percent female or more than 60 percent like people of color and Mm -hmm. all these other great things that that um yeah, has been proven time after time for like creating better outcomes. Oh, completely. Because I did notice a lot of women and diversity on your team. Have you been deliberate about that, or has that just been, hey, these are the people who care deeply about what we're trying to do? It like does. You're, you're yeah. drawing in those people because of the subject matter. So I think the 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 advantage that we have is the latter, mm-hmm. where like people are interested because of the subject matter, but it only matters if you. Uh, are deliberate about the former. It's the same thing about yeah. culture. Right? Culture will happen uh, whether or not you're deliberate about it. So right. you might as well be deliberate yeah. about it. If you and, hadn't named these things, something would have formed. It would have been yeah. something. Right? And again, like this is something that we continue to um, iterate on over time. And, and it's something that we all build together. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and same thing with like diversity in in. In hiring, and this goes beyond sort of skin color and gender. It's also about like way of thought and about like you know uh, what how you grew up and all of these other aspects. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, like that that if you know the way that we do our job descriptions, the way that we do our interview process, the way that you know all of these elements like have to be deliberate. If the what have you done? What have you done to be deliberate? Um, and I want to touch on this because I'm curious. Of course, is yeah. my world. To be deliberate about job descriptions and interview questions. Yeah, so uh, if you go on our um, careers page for our, our job descriptions, it's purposely not a litany of like resume bullets. That's one that has, right? So we actually say we we frame up what the job, uh, what 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 would excite someone about the job, and then we lay out what you're going to do in the first month, in the first three months, in the first year, and like. It's the those sort of activities and outcomes and like th- that that and the way that we frame that that actually attracts a lot more people rather than uh, the way that's done traditionally, which I would argue that you know as it's funny I, I was literally at a a wedding where I had this conversation with someone where um, you know a there was a job posting uh, for this position that a friend of mine really wanted and she was like oh but it like says you need like eight years of experience and you're in this gonna say field. she because women do that too you know that that all the statistics said yeah. women feel like they have to have done it before they right. can apply and men just are like oh whatever I'll and just the, and, be and, and, like, through and the other guy was like what do you mean of course like yeah you know, like, yeah, like Four years, yeah. you're fine. Right? But people and do so apply like, to jobs that they're not qualified for. All the, I mean, as a recruiter, I can tell you. Yeah. And so what about in the interview process? What do you do? To, how do you measure for, like, strive or empathy? Yeah. Um, so it's, you know, we it, it varies on the role, right? Um, but, you know, a, a big part of uh, our interview process is, you know, there's usually, there's always some sort of way that they can demonstrate their function uh, in a non, like, 
time bound in front of other people method, right? So we don't do any sort of whiteboard coding. We don't do like real time activities, but there's a chance for someone to showcase their work um, on their own time in a way that they can process, uh, whether that's, you know, various different types of assignments or like like questions or uh, different elements so that you can actually see how they, they think um, in a, you know, less pressure-filled, like, mm-hmm. environment. Well, some people are just incredible at coding, but they're just terrible at whiteboarding. Right. Or we have candidates all the time that, like, this company passes quickly, and the next company, one of their competitors picks them up just as quickly. Yeah. And it's hard to—we haven't figured that one out. If we had, we'd, I'd be on the beach retired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's not easy, right? Like, we, we, we still, you know, we— yeah, and we do do things that like research has shown. So, like you know, where possible, we strip out like names or you know genders mm-hmm. or other identifying factors so you can actually for bias, reveal, yeah, for bias. Um, and then you know we try to you know give people as you know uh, through through the interview process, it's like trying to give them exposure to a lot of different people within the company and different mm-hmm. styles. And we purposely choose different pairings of folks or mm-hmm. uh, ways to make people feel more comfortable. And do you uh, do the bar raiser thing like Amazon? Um, we we don't yet. Um, I think it's uh, it's not intended that there's going to be one interview that's purposely trying to act, increase the stress or um, uh, specifically about a candidate. I think it's it's an obligation for all of us to say, hey, is this person going to you know help make Boundless a better place to work? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, and as a whole, though, like I think the idea is is around being able to also expand beyond and so it's snowballed beyond like the easy candidates mm-hmm. right like if you take the the people that you work with before only or the people that are in your network only then they're going to be more similar to you more of the same. <laughs> right yeah and so you know uh, what is nice is that you know as in the beginning i seated you know we've had you know seen women and senior president more like majority of my directs are women um and within different communities and different like backgrounds, mm-hmm. um, that has then sort of snowballed into like then they're able to draw different folks. Of course, well, um, women know that they're going to feel comfortable working there, and it's it's a whole thing. I think that's that's amazing. And so, where do you see boundless or kind of this problem that you're trying to solve? When will you feel like, oh my gosh, we've arrived? <laughs> Like, is there a definition of that? I don't think that there will ever be a day where you feel like, man, mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> um, or is there a goal? I know yeah. you're very goal oriented. So what's what's the next goal? So so there there are two finish lines that I get. That's really, a better word. Finish line. There are two two um, or actually even a better word in this case is there are two two milestones or two checkpoints because mm-hmm. the race will keep going. Uh, um, that that I get really excited about. The first is that we are able to help everyone who comes to us who looks for help. Right now, we do two products. We do marriage green cards and we do naturalization. And if you don't use either of those two products or if your case is um, extraordinarily complicated, uh, we send you to the generic pool of uh, immigration lawyers in the U.S. And so it's like you're on your own, just like as if before you met us, only now you have a little more information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the idea is, and, and what, what's really exciting is, you know, already, and it continues to grow at a rapid pace, like over half a million families come to us every month. That's incredible. Looking for help. Right. And it's 
really heartbreaking when most of them we can't we can't help mm-hmm. them with. And so how do that, they find you? Uh, through the internet and through various. They just uh, type. I mean that. It just comes up like so keywords. We, we, we invest a lot in, in resources. And, and basically, the idea is that people historically, if they were looking for information about immigration processes online, would spend hours going through various blogs. Yeah, and, how would you even know where to and, begin? And, and you don't know who to trust. And there's so much conflicting information. And so we're like, you know what? Let's just create the, the, the canonical source of information. One-stop shop. Yeah, that in a way that people can understand. Right, the U.S. government websites, precise but often complicated, difficult to understand. Of course, um, even for you know English as a first language, yeah. let alone English as a second language. Exactly. So, so that that's how we get people. Um, and then once they're uh, and and what I'm saying is like, okay, I would love to be able to actually funnel all of these people into the right places. So, mm-hmm. like, we're working with like the you know, Association of Immigration Lawyers to see like what are ways that we can better like funnel people to uh, lawyers that are experts in those areas. We're looking at like building obviously new products. There's like uh, different different types of service models that we're, we're going to be experimenting mm-hmm. with over the so next So the first years. milestone would be helping you come everyone here, who comes. You're good, right. And, and what's the, the second one? The second one is, you know, we have turned into the like the trusted friend for immigrants uh, that, that a lot of times people don't have, have never had before and the trusted confidant or trusted guide. And where I want to be is to be able to be that partner for people for the first 10 years of their, uh, of a new life in a new country. So uh, our customers are coming back to us now for help with taxes, for help with, like, how do I open a credit card? Or, oh, like, this is incredible. You apply for my work permit, but um, how do I find a job, right? Or, like, and we have all of their information, right? We know everything that they've studied. We know everywhere they work. We know where they live. We know all this. And so, like, you know, how do we do medical insurance? There's all these, like, questions about, like, think about, like, if you, if you were plopped into a new country— and you're like, I don't Where know do I what's go? going on. Right. Yeah. And, and people have been dependent on their community. It's like New Life 101. <laughs> right. Um, but one, not not often everyone has access to, like, great experts in their communities. Yeah. But two is, like, a lot of these experts, to be blunt, aren't necessarily experts in that particular field. Or have their best interests. Right, right. And so, like, that's the, the next one. It's like, yeah, like, we help you with the immigration paperwork. Great. We got you through this huge initial massive hurdle now like how can we help you live the best life that you want the same way that like you know i'm creating boundless to like help people be able to have the you know be able to do their best work right and be uh, as a as a as a place where people can really thrive at from an employment perspective like what i want our products and services to be is to help people be able to truly thrive from a life perspective i love it Oh, my gosh. I feel super inspired, and I cannot wait to watch you continue to kill it and grow. And um, I'm, I feel lucky that you're in Seattle and in this community. Um, my final question, and I ask everyone, is what fuels you? What ultimately fuels you? I think I'm going to guess, but kind of in a legacy type of way. I, I've always had this mental model of humanity as this long wall. I mean, it's from China. <laughs> my Chinese background. Mm-hmm. Just think of it as a great wall. <laughs> the great wall of China or just uh, any wall. Humanity. And I want to, like, 
be able to contribute a meaningful brick to that wall. Right, that like somehow that will outlast me, that will last, last like my life. That um, that I can say that look, look, yeah, I I did something for others, um, and and you know, and be able to look back and and be able to 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 think about like with all the gifts and with all the privilege and with all the opportunities I've had to be able to translate that to, you know, something that, that meaningfully improves the lives of other members of, of, of our society and of humanity. Um, I think that's is something feels, that, yeah. that, that would feel me or I that, that does feel me. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And um, what's the website in case there's any potential immigrants looking for help. Yeah, let's go to boundless.com. Nice. Thank you so much, Xiao. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Xiao. Take care. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.